for your always enduring word. Thank you not only for giving it to us, but for preserving it through the decades and centuries. It's been opposed. It's been, it's been uh, destroyed at times in various forms, but you have preserved it for us that we might hear your voice always ringing true. Now we ask that you'd illumine our minds that we might hear it as you would have us hear it. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we considered just the first point as we looked at this passage, and that is what is pointed out for us right there in chapter 7, verse 11. If perfection had been attainable, and the point is is that it, it wasn't. That doesn't mean, as we saw last week, that Old Testament saints were not saved by grace through faith in the Messiah, just as we are. But it means that they were pointing forward to something perfect. The imperfect pointing to the perfect. And so he begins with this. If, if those Old Testament sacrifices, the Old Testament ceremonies, the feast days, all those things, had, had they been able to accomplish what God required, then Christ's coming and taking on flesh and suffering and dying and being, being humiliated in, 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 in His uh, entombment and all of that, that would have been a, well, as I said last week, would have been a, a cosmic tragedy for God the Father to put His Son through all that when it was unnecessary. But indeed it was necessary. It was necessary. And so the perfect one had to come. We saw, too, last week that, that we're not to misunderstand this uh, when it says that the, the, the law uh, is weak and useless doesn't mean that it's not good and spiritual and holy. Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 7. It continues, the moral law continues as our rule of life. We wouldn't know what right and wrong is were it not written on our hearts and given to us in an external form that we might see it even when our hearts grow hard. And so we're not to say from this passage that, well then, the law, it says here that it's changed, it's, it's, it's no longer uh, good, and so it's gone away. There's been a change in the, in the law. It's a change in the law concerning the ceremonies. As Paul says to the Corinthians, all those all those promises that were wrapped up in the ceremonies that were administered by the priest, the Aaronic priest, those are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. He fulfilled them perfectly. And so they've come to an end. We no longer sacrifice, bloody sacrifices, because Christ once and all for all did that. We no longer offer the incense. We no longer do all those things that were part of the old covenant dispensation as our confession of faith refers to it. That doesn't mean that we can't learn from them, does it? As this, as this very book is showing us, 
There's much we can learn from those Old Testament ceremonies. We go back now and we read them, and we read them through the lens of the New Testament, and we see Christ clearly represented there. Whether it be in the priestly office or it be in the sacrifices themselves, Christ stands out clearly before us. Well, today, what I want us to do is pick up there with the insufficiency of that old covenant and pick up with the perfection. Because that's largely what this passage is about. Not so much the imperfections of the old covenant, but the perfections of the new covenant. And even more specifically, the perfections of the mediator and the guarantor of the new covenant. And so let's look at it. Two points this morning. One last week, two this week, three next week, four the week after, and so on. No, just joking. Perfection is guaranteed by a divine oath. That's what this chapter is about. Perfection is guaranteed by a divine oath. The Old Testament uh, priest, the Old Covenant priest, came into office how? Well, it tells us here, by their descent. That was the law. Go back and read in Leviticus and you see the descendants of Aaron, Aaron's sons and their sons after them were to be the priestly order. We have some, some uh, uh, very prominent sons of Aaron who did well and some who didn't do so well. Obviously, the ones mentioned in Malachi didn't do very well. That was part of the imperfection of the Old Covenant. You had, you had men trying to do the work. And so we learn here that the Old Covenant priest came through human descent. It says uh, in verse 20, it was not uh, without an oath. That is, the new better hope is not without an oath. And that's, and that's so where we, we come to with the new covenant priest. When he came into office, it was not because of descent, human descent. He, he was not born. In fact, we're told here that he was of Judah. He was not of Aaron. He was not of that line. And we're even told here that, and Moses said nothing about that. In other words, this, this, is, this is part of what sets Christ apart. He's not like Aaron and his sons. He's not even in the lineage of Aaron and his sons. See, if you'd asked Nadab and Abihu, both before, well, I guess you could have only asked them before they made that awful sacrifice. But if you'd asked them, what gives you the right to stand here and to offer these sacrifices? They would have said, uh, I'm, I'm in Aaron's lineage. And Moses said, that's how you determine a priest. But that's not the answer Christ would have given. Notice what it says here. On the one hand, a former commandment set aside, verse 18 says, because it's weakness and uselessness. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly 
who formerly became priests were such, made such without an oath, that is, because of their lineage. But this one was made a priest with an oath, but not just any oath. Did you notice that? Notice immediately that the author to the Hebrew church says, For it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then a few verses lower he says, uh, This one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So that's the basis for the writer to the Hebrews to say that Christ priesthood is one by oath, not by lineage, not by natural descent. He's one after the order of Melchizedek. Simply been declared by God, this is the one. In this case, he's the son. Remember the early chapters of Hebrews? What is it that makes Christ so different? Well, to summarize, he's God. That's what makes Christ so different from, from everyone else. And that's why he can be the better everything, the better prophet, the better priest, the better mediator, the better guarantor of a better covenant because he's God. Not because he just was a better man. You know, there have actually been people in the history of the church who just couldn't buy in to this thing that Jesus Christ could be divine, eternal, the second person of the Godhead, and take on flesh. And they've come up with all sorts of ways then to try to understand and try to explain naturalistically why Jesus is all these things. And you know, the bottom line is this. It can be summarized with the adoptionist view back in the early church. He was such a good man. He was, he was just off the charts good. And so God finally had a good man to work with and so he adopted him as his son and made him his son here on this earth and gave him special gifts to, to carry out this special work. The problem is, is that the scriptures don't agree with that. And your experience wouldn't agree with it either because that would assume that there must be every once in a while really good people. I mean, just off, off the chart, exemplary, moral, per, morally perfect people. And your experience is counter to that. Even in your own mirror. Even in my own mirror. And then, of course, the Bible backs our experience up, doesn't it? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none good. None who seek after God. No, Jesus Christ is declared here by oath to be the priest forever because he's the Son of God. So from chapter 1 to chapter 7, the message is largely the same. Everything he is, everything that, that he, he, he becomes and does in his earthly life, 
And everything that he is doing for us right now is because he is the second person of the Holy Trinity. And it's his intention to save all his people from all their sins. Utterly. To the uttermost, as the ESV translates it. Listen. Let's not miss the author's citation here. Again, chapter 110 of the Psalms, verse 4. It's the Lord who has sworn. He's calling people to witness what he asserts. That's an oath. Uh, our confession is helpful here. It defines an oath. Let me just read it for you. An oath is, is, a, is a, 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 the person swearing uh, an oath solemnly calls God to witness what he asserts, promises, and to judge him according to the truth or falsehood. And in this case, God is the one who is calling us to observe. Calling us, the people, observe. Observe what he's asserted. Observe what he promises. And then judge as to whether he's right or not. What's he asserted about Christ? What did the Father assert? But this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. That's one of the assertions that the Father spoke during Christ's earthly existence. This is my beloved Son. That's part of his, his oathing, his swearing. This is my beloved son in whom I'm pleased. What did he promise? Well, he promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and none will be disappointed who believe. Now then, we get to look and we, we say, well, was God's, God's oath was it right? The answer is yes. How do we know that his beloved, that was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased? The scriptures tell us that he raised him from the dead, vindicating him. And then the testimony from history is that he saves people. He takes people out of their sin. He doesn't just... He doesn't just give them a ticket to go to heaven someday, but he, he, he changes them. Remember what Spurgeon said? This is one of those quotes, hopefully you'll etch on your brain like has been on mine for 30 years now. A grace, listen to this, and this is all bound in the scriptures. And, and largely from very good exegesis of Matthew 1.21, you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people ek, out of their sins. Not just from the penalty of their sins, but from the power of their sins. And Spurgeon said, the grace that doesn't change a man and make him better than others is a worthless counterfeit. We've witnessed that in the history of the world. Yes, God's taken covenant children and saved them in their homes, brought them up in the nurture of the church, and they've grown up to be good and godly citizens of this world and of the church, servants of Christ. 
But he's also gone out there in the world and taken some John Newtons off of the slave ships and changed them radically. The grace that doesn't take a man and change him and make him better than others is a worthless counterfeit. That's the testimony. That's what God's, God's sworn, that this is my son. And all who believe in him will be saved and not disappointed. So Christ is a priest by oath. And notice further what the oath says here, not only not only what the, the substance of an oath is, but notice what it says here. You're a priest forever. This was never said of an Old Testament priest. Why could it not be said of an Old Testament priest? Well, it told us here in this passage, didn't it? Verse 23, the former priest, the Old Covenant priest, were many in number. Why were there so many of them? Well, it tells us that too, because they were prevented by death from continuing in their office. In other words, they died. But Christ is a priest forever. You say, but he died. That's right, he did. But on the third day, he was gloriously resurrected and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he continues forever, verse 24 says. This is a permanent priesthood. Jesus was and is the priest that we need for our salvation and he is by divine oath and that oath is irrevocable. God, when he makes an oath, he keeps it. By the way, for you and your individual salvation, there, there's an oath there as well, isn't there? Paul tells us in the book to the Philippians that that which he begins in us, he will bring to completion in Christ Jesus. That's an oath, folks. God swore, what I begin in you, I will finish. Now, you know, if you struggle with assurance of salvation, you need to deal with, do you trust God? Do you believe God? God said it. There's no equivocating on it. It really does, doesn't it? Over and over, get back to, do we really believe what God says? Do we really believe that what He begins in us, He will bring to completion? Or do I believe I should get a little glory in this, so I want to try my part, but when I fail, and you will, then we kind of get uneasy about our standing with God, don't we? The only reason you should ever be uneasy in your standing before God is if you're counting on your effort. Because Christ's effort 
is perfect. The old covenant priests were not perfect. That's why they had to offer sacrifices for their own sins. Christ didn't offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He offered sacrifice for our sins. And he saves us completely. Notice, lastly, that his salvation is grounded in his perfection. The former priests were many, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. We saw that last week, earlier in the passage, similar. We looked at John 14, 6, that if you're going to, be, if you're going to come to the Father, you have to come through Christ. And he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that remarkable? Christ always lives to make intercession. What does that mean? That means he's interceding for us. He did this on the earth during his earthly ministry. If you go and look at the, 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 the Lord's Prayer, not the model prayer, but the Lord's Prayer in John 17... Jesus told his disciples then, told his father, in fact, as he was praying, I pray for my people. I don't pray for the world. Even then he was interceding for his people. And even now he intercedes for us. You remember that remarkable scene in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen was being stoned to death for the truth? And Stephen looked, and there at the right hand of the Father, he saw the Lord. Scholars and commentators have for centuries understood that to be a picture of the intercessory work of Christ standing for his people. And he does for you, and he does for me. He does in those little bitty prayers that you pray, and those really big prayers that you pray. That's the reason we have any hope that, 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 that the Father hears us. is because the Son intercedes for us. You say, yeah, but I'm not even sure my prayers get that far. I'm not sure they, they reach the right hand of God the Father in order to, for, for, for the Lord Jesus to hear my prayers. That, that's okay. The Lord Jesus Christ took care of that too. Right? He said, I'll give you my spirit. And what's one of the works of the spirit? Is to take our pathetic groanings and communicate them to the Son, to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might intercede for us and we might be saved completely. You see, this is part of his ongoing. Folks, listen to me. J.B. Phillips was right a long time ago when he said we have to be very careful not to think about God as an old man. Because the scriptures define him as ancient. And because the, the, the scriptures define him as having white hair, Philip says 
don't fall into the trap to think he's old. Because typically when we think of people as being old, we tend to think that they don't understand anymore. You know, they're a different generation. They're out of touch. We also typically think they're hard of hearing, so they probably didn't hear what we said. Did you hear what I said? You can't afford to think of God that way. You can't afford to think of Jesus Christ in the past tense either. You cannot just think of what Jesus did for you past tense. You need to be every day marveling at what Jesus Christ is doing for you. Did you notice what it says here? It says that He is able to save to the uttermost. Why? Since He is always living to make intercession for you. Isn't that not just remarkable? That your Savior listens. He hears everything you say. That's one of the reasons that passage is, a, is very sobering that tells us that every idle word will be brought back to our, our memory one of these days. We need to be careful what we say. He hears us. Let our prayers be as they ought to be to the Lord. And then notice the four in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest. And that's not real good. And almost every translation translates it that way. For it was fitting. And almost every Greek scholar and commentator says that's not very good. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. It really means for it was so necessary that we have such a high priest. We needed this kind of high priest. What kind of high priest? One that's holy. One that's innocent. One that's unstained. And then these, these uh, big, big uh, general statements of those three specifics. Separated from sinners. Exalted above the heavens. Holy, innocent, unstained. Holy, referring to his messianic office and his deity. Our holiness, the Bible says we're to be holy, yes. But our holiness is derived from him. None of us are inherently holy. Our holiness is imputed. It comes from Christ. His is inherent. He's the eternal holy one because he's God. And then he's, he's innocent or blameless. That speaks to his, his relationship to us. We needed someone who was innocent because we're not. And then unstained. The old covenant priest, remember, they had to offer sacrifices. Why? Well, because we were sinners. But they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. Why? Because they were sinners. They were stained. They had to deal with their own stains first before they could deal with our stains. Not Jesus. He was the perfect Lamb of God. Remember Peter's comment? We're saved by the perfect, stainless one, Jesus Christ. Listen, 
Listen to what else he says. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily. Now that's a, that's a, I need to comment on this because somebody's going to come up afterwards and say, you know what, in the Old Testament, the, the priest didn't offer daily sacrifices except during the, the week of atonement. Then they were daily. Is that what he's referring to? Some take it to be that, that he's simply looking at that big week. And so each day, uh, others say, but that's not what it says. I think this is, the Bible's wrong here. I think this writer is wrong. God, God put something wrong in his Bible. Um, there are some other answers to this. The practice at the time that the book of Hebrews was written, for instance, that, uh, that the priests actually were going into the temple daily and offering daily sacrifices. Maybe he was speaking to the common occurrence of the day. Or maybe he was looking to that ultimate sacrifice, uh, those sacrifices given during the feast days, and he's talking about all the daily work that they had to do through the year, which they did, to come to that. So he's speaking of the general to the specific. First for his own sins, then for those of the people. Jesus has no need of this, however you're to understand that. No need of this, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus said, I lay down my life on my own. That was a priestly statement Jesus was making. That was not just simply him saying to the people around him at the time that you're not going to take me to the cross one moment before I want to go. Although that was true too. But that was Jesus, just as he was talking about the lambs, the sheep, knowing his voice. He was talking in a, in a shepherd, priestly relationship there. Here he's talking in that sense, and here it's fleshed out. He did this once for all when he offered up himself. Focus on the once for all, folks. There is no need for continuing sacrifices, whether of the Old Testament sort or any sort. Christ did it once and for all. Listen to this wonderful summation. We have one priest... One, because of the spotless sanctity of his ever-continuing life, who offered up but one sacrifice. One, because of its all-sufficient fullness, susceptible, therefore, of neither addition nor repetition. The sacrifice, moreover, not of some uncomprehending beast, but of himself, the beloved Son of God, who by reason of his incarnation was able to offer up himself in our stead. As four things are to be taken into account in every sacrifice, namely what is offered, to whom it is offered, by whom it is offered, and for whom it is offered, he who is our one true mediator 
reconciling us to God by a sacrifice of peace, remained one with him to whom he offered, he was holy, became one with those for whom he offered, he was innocent. And as the person who offered was one and the same with what was offered, so great is the sacrifice that although it is one and once offered, it suffices to eternity. Do you get it? Jesus did it all. The one to be offered, the one offered, the one for whom, all of it. And he continues, that's how it ends. A son who has been made perfect forever. Folks, there is no need for any other. Your love for Christ from a passage like this ought to just take off. It, it ought to go into orbit. You look at this and say, wow. Our Savior is so far above and beyond everything and anything that the Old Covenant you know, there was only so much those promises could shadow and only so much those promises could picture. It's no wonder, is it, that when Christ came, still people didn't get it because He was so far above it all. And you and I would miss it too, but for the grace of God. Aren't you thankful? God gives you the spiritual eyes to see His Son. He gives you the Holy Spirit working in you to believe in the Son. And He gives you grace to live forever in the Son. There's nowhere else to be. Christ Jesus forever. Amen. Thank you, Father for the perfection of your Son, and for all that He's accomplished for us. We just simply rest in it. Thank you for the faith to receive it and to rest in our Savior. Thank you for your Spirit, a wonderful gift from you and the Son that we might enjoy your salvation. We pray now that you would fill us full that we might leave this place today full of your spirit, thankful for the Son, rejoicing that we have a Father who loves us so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hymn 339.